Stand by while NCLA cuts through the noise to signal abuse of administrative power. This is Administrative Static with Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchione. Welcome back to Administrative Static. Mark Chenoweth and John Vecchioni with you as always. And John, are you tired of winning yet? We have. It's really, it's really been a good run. This is <laughs> this is this is hot nonprofit summer. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It's uh, uh, it's been a it's been a good uh, about two months here. Uh, certainly the last several weeks, and we have another victory to report to to the audience. This one out of the state of Arizona where one of our very first uh, clients uh, very early on in our, uh, in our tenure here at, uh, at NCLA, a gentleman named Philip B. Uh, had a case pending in front of the Arizona Court of Appeals. And you may recall, we've t- we talked about this case, but it's been a while, John, because the case has been pending for yeah, months we, and months we, and months. Yeah, it was fully briefed, and then, and then it's been before the court, and we can see why now, I think. Yeah, well, and this was argued by our former colleague uh, Adi Dinar, who has uh, uh, who has gone on to uh, other employment, but uh, did a did a good job with this with this case and the briefing and the argument. And uh, he is a he's an Arizona licensed attorney, and uh, so Adi had brought this case to us. And for those who who haven't listened to the program in a while or missed that episode, uh, Philip B. Uh, his last name begins with B, but his full name has been redacted to preserve his uh, anonymity. Uh, and that's because he was falsely accused in this case. And we don't want to drag his name uh, through the mud and the court systems protect uh, his identity as well. So so we've been able to go forward. And what happened to, uh, to Philip B is that he was the manager of a group home for uh, troubled teenagers out in Arizona. And he had been doing this kind of work for about 20 years without incident, uh, but he had a, a young man in the group home who was be, uh, misbehaving one day, turning over chairs, refusing to do his chores and so forth. And Philip B. grabbed him by the T-shirt up by his shoulder and and sat him down in a chair and held him at arm's length is what the testimony is. Didn't want to have, didn't want to be nose to nose with him and just held him until he was calmed down a little bit. The, uh, the T-shirt was ripped. There was no dispute about that aspect of the testimony. But a couple of weeks after this incident, another student in the or another uh, teenager in the group home reported Philip B. as having abused this other uh, this other child. So an investigation uh, was done both by by the group home and by the Department of Child Safety out there in Arizona. And the. Uh, the Department of Child Safety decided decided to to go ahead and and pursue uh, the case. Well, the group home didn't think that was appropriate, and Philip B didn't think that was appropriate. So they they demanded a hearing in front of uh, of an administrative law judge. And John, we we're not usually big fans of ALJs here on the program, but in this particular instance, uh, the ALJs in Arizona at the state level are independent ALJs, meaning that they are not employees of any particular agency 
uh, whose actions they are uh, judging. And I think that's an important uh, factor here, because what happened is once Philip B. got in front of the ALJ and the ALJ took his testimony and live testimony from other adults who were who were on the scene and uh, and looked at the record evidence that the the DCS uh, had put together and concluded based on credibility determinations and and the totality of the evidence that there was no probable cause for a finding uh, what they call a substantiality finding that any child abuse had occurred here and so the ALJ was not willing uh, to put Philip B's name on Arizona's central registry of substantiated findings of child abuse notwithstanding that the then director of DCS a guy named Gregory McKay uh, who is no longer the director of DCS he deleted the factual findings and credibility determinations that the ALJ had made because under state law in Arizona the ALJ decision goes up to the director of the agency so he essentially unilaterally overturned the ALJ's finding i mean agreed with some of the of the findings but overturned enough in particularly the credibility determinations uh, in order to then decide to to change the outcome of the case and to put Philip B's name uh, on the registry and we made a number of uh, so we challenged that in uh, state superior court out in uh, Arizona and the state superior court upheld the decision of of the uh, director of DCS and so we took the case again on appeal uh, to the Arizona Court of Appeals and uh, John that's where things got interesting because we raised several constitutional challenges to what transpired in these proceedings yep. including lack of due process and so forth but the judge wasn't really interested in those in those constitutional arguments. Yeah, well, I thought in the appellate, what they said is, look, we've decided this on non-constitutional grounds, so we're not going to go to all the rest of it. But they did say, you know, he's entitled to cost and fees. And I mean, it it is this probable cause, uh, this, this statutory interpretation of what probable cause is and what, what the director can do if the ALJ hasn't found that probable cause. I think it it it's statutory, but it certainly has due processy sounds around it. I agree with that. Yeah, I think that's right. So what John's talking about is that the uh, uh, the, the court of appeals read the relevant statute and regulations to say that uh, as a as a matter of statutory and regulatory interpretation, the director, if, if the ALJ had found that. Philip B, that there was probable cause, and then that had gone to the director, and the director had agreed with that, then the name can go on the registry. But essentially, both of those things have to happen. The ALJ has to make the determination, and the director has to agree with the ALJ. And in this case, neither one of those things happened, because the ALJ didn't make the credibility, or excuse me, didn't make the substantiality finding, didn't think that there was evidence uh, to support a substantial finding of, of child abuse. And then the director didn't agree with the ALJ. The director uh, thought thought that the facts pointed in a different direction. And since, the, since what the regulations say is that you have to have both the ALJ and the director to agree in order to put someone's name on the registry, and neither one of those things happened here, then the name can't go on the registry. And the, the, the name has been ordered to be stricken from the registry. So this is this is fantastic for our client Philip B. His uh, reputation and livelihood uh, are going to be restored now. And, 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 
And you know what it does? It also advances the administrative law uh, 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 corpus of Arizona. I mean, I, I, I do think that this type of uh, decision on how the ALJs there work with the agencies um, is going to be important. And the, the other thing about it that I think is, I mean, this, I, it was such an injustice that this guy had an almost 30-year career doing this with nothing on his record. And then for some reason, this director on this, what seems to have been a, a, an event that no matter what happened, didn't last more than 20 minutes, 15 minutes or something like this. And, uh, and, and the complaining person wasn't even the kid, it was somebody else who, 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 who called. I mean, it's really a terrible thing to destroy a man's career over this sort of thing, regardless. But I, I, I mean, it, it is a tremendous outcome for that reason as well. I agree. I mean, it felt to me from the beginning, like one of the students in the group home, which, you know, I'm not saying every kid in a group home is a troublemaker. That would be, that would be unfair to say that, but I do think that there are troublemakers in group homes. And it sounded, it sounded to me from the beginning, like someone was trying to get the adult in trouble. Uh, and there are troublemakers in my home, Mark. <laughs> fair, fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so it, it, uh, uh, you know, and, and again, that's, that's not to say that, that the process that they have in place never works. I'm sure that there are cases of abuse and that those cases are reported sometimes by the residents of the group home and that those things need to be rooted out of the system. But, uh, but I don't think that's what happened here. And as you say, Philip B had a, had a sterling record. Uh, in addition to working at the group home, he's been a coach for a high school football team and things like that. And it just hasn't had a record of any kind of, of problems, but had had uh, much of his career, taken away from him by this. Now, I, I can also say that NCLA exposed with our constitutional arguments several problems in the DCS process that did merit review, including the low burden of proof that John referred to, that DCS has to meet, the inability of defendants to cross-examine witnesses, and then, of course, the, the ultimate factor that the court did decide on, that the DCS director's ability to reverse the independent ALJ's findings, which essentially puts the DCS director in the position of being the prosecutor, judge, and jury in deciding uh, someone like Philippe's fate, and and that was the problem, uh, that was the problem here, and and I, you know, one understands the the DCS DCS director's tendency to want to believe his own caseworkers and 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 privilege their views, but that's why you have an independent uh, ALJ in this circumstance who can take the testimony and can make the credibility determinations without that sort of uh, bias, if you will. Of, of tending to believe you know, the, the people in your chain of command. And so th the fact that the, that the court of appeals saw this is fantastic. I don't think John, that the state of Arizona will appeal this. I don't know what you think if they no. do appeal it, that would give us an opportunity to cross appeal. Some of those constitutional issues. Well, that I think that's exactly right. And, and that we, you and I hate the, uh, the doctrine of constitutional avoidance, but, um, but it's a, it's a longstanding, uh, thing that that courts have all, all do everywhere that I know of, and the only thing that they would get out of that, it seems to me, is um, further nails in the coffin of this of this judgment. Because what what could actually drive them to do this after reading this opinion? I, I can't imagine the person who say, "Ah, now I'm going to get this. I'm going to I'm going to get Philip B. No matter what." Yeah, I mean, it, uh, it, it would be especially ridiculous. since yeah, especially since the DCS director is someone different now. Uh, 
you know, I don't think there's going to be much motivation to do that. So kudos to Judge Stephen Williams of the Arizona Court of Appeals and his colleagues uh, for deciding in Philip B.'s favor on this uh, on the central legal argument in the case that there wasn't a substantiated finding. Uh, we're delighted, delighted for Philip B. And we'll be back uh, with more right after this on Administrative Static. Welcome back to Administrative Static with John Vecchioni and Mark Chenoweth. We have uh, we have another victory to tell you about. This one is a is a not quite as big a deal in the sense that we were just amicus participants uh, in this case, but a little bit bigger deal in the sense that this is a U.S. Supreme Court decision. Uh, so uh, the, the the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a decision this week in American Hospital Association v. Becerra, and the issue at stake in this uh, in this case and I think we talked about this this case before maybe back in November or December around the time of oral argument John but the uh, the the issue in this case had to has to do with interpreting uh, reimbursement rates under the Medicare statute for a certain group of of hospitals called section 340b uh, hospitals and and I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's been too long since we briefed this, John, uh, who the 340B hospitals are, if those are like rural hospitals or nonprofit hospitals, but it, it's some category of of hospitals. And what uh, HHS had had done was decide that uh, that those hospitals were paying considerably less for drugs than other hospitals. And so they wanted to lower the reimbursement rate for drugs for that one type of hospital. And the statute authorizes HHS to vary reimbursement rates, but only if it first conducts a survey and then concludes that some hospital groups have lower acquisition costs for drugs than than other groups do. And they didn't do a survey here. And so the you know, the question by the time it it got up to the Supreme Court was whether or not uh, the Department of Health and Human Services, and that, that's the reason this case is Becerra, because uh, Javier Becerra is the is the uh, secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, and the question is whether or not HHS's interpretation of the relevant uh, statute uh, is reasonable or not. And the reason I say that is because that's how the D.C. Circuit decided the case. Uh, Chief Judge Sri Srinivasan of the D.C. Circuit had looked at this, and there was a dissent. And I believe John, the dissent was Nina Pillard of all people. Uh, yeah. Believe it, believe it or not, it was. I believe it was uh, Judge Srinivasan and Judge uh, Patricia Millette in the majority, and it was, uh, and it was Judge P- uh, Nina Pillard in dissent. And I, I read that dissent from the D.C. Circuit by Nina Pillard, and I, I think I agreed with every word of it, which might be the first time I've done that with a, with a Nina Pillard decision. So, uh, yeah, and, yeah. And I think it just shows you it's it's a problem with Chevron, right? We're, we're going to talk later about you know different interpretations, but Chevron is an ink block. Uh, and and I think this case really shows that. But. Yeah, so let's let's get to that because the uh, the only other thing you really need to know about the Supreme Court's decision is 
it was unanimous, and they decided that the Department of Health and Human Services violated the 2003 Medicare Act by lowering the drug reimbursement rates uh, for hospitals. Uh, the decision was written by Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh. And John says, I don't get any points for agreeing with this Kavanaugh decision uh, since it was <laughs> unanimous. But uh, uh, but he, he wrote that the statute expressly authorizes HHS to vary rates by hospital group if HHS has conducted a survey. But the statute does not authorize such a variance in rates if HHS has not conducted a survey. Well, that's, I mean, that's pretty basic uh, logic. So you'd think, well, how did the D.C. Circuit uh, get it wrong? Uh, the Supreme Court further ruled that Medicare, uh, that the Medicare statute requires reimbursement rates to be set, quote, drug by drug, not hospital by hospital or hospital group by hospital group, unquote. So, uh, so yeah, so how did the District of Columbia Circuit get it wrong? And John alluded to Chevron deference, right? They had decided that there was an ambiguity in the statute, and given the ambiguity, the question doesn't become, is the agency's interpretation the best interpretation of the statute? The question becomes, is it a reasonable interpretation of the statute? And two out of three judges on the D.C. Circuit had decided that it was a reasonable uh, interpretation of the statute. Nine out of nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court decided that not only was it not, not only did they not decide that, they didn't even get to that reasonability question, John, because they decided this, what we would call Chevron step one. Although I think it's very interesting, they never mention Chevron. Like, I know Chevron I does not that appear. Is, right. Yeah, it's it's odd that it doesn't appear. It makes you wonder if maybe Chevron has a, uh, you know, has a, a limited future. I, I think I, I think our our boss Philip Hamburger referred to Chevron as the Walking Dead at the uh, at the NCLA gala uh, earlier this month, and that's uh, that that's probably a fairly apt description. Of, of where Chevron deference comes. He says that the, you know, the death certificate has not been issued, but it's certainly uh, dying a slow death. And, uh, and, and so effectively, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, at, at Chevron step one employed the tools of statutory interpretation and said that it's clear here what the statute requires and we don't have to go any further or do anything else because nine out of nine justices agree that HHS's interpretation isn't uh, isn't in accord with the, with the statute. Uh, but John, we filed, NCLA that is, filed an amicus brief in this case precisely because we thought this might be the kind of case that would lead the court to overturn Chevron. But the court keeps doing this, right? They keep dodging Chevron uh, and, and these deference issues entirely in order to just strike down agency action without going through the Chevron two-step. But the, the lower courts, as long as Chevron's on the books, the lower courts are going to keep relying on Chevron. So, you know, I, I don't, I don't quite understand what the Supreme Court's doing here unless, uh, I mean, I suppose the, the easy explanation is, well, look, they really did think that, that there wasn't anything here, but why wouldn't they invoke Chevron? Why wouldn't they say this case is an easy case under Chevron step one, we employ all the tools of statutory interpretation and we decide it and we don't ever have to get to Chevron step two. Why wouldn't they say that? I don't know. I, I guess they want to just say the statute's clear and you got to follow it. I mean, I don't know. The mystery. Maybe, maybe to get the majority, they couldn't invite any more attacks on Chevron. Well, yeah, that that could be why it was unanimous. The fact that they don't mention it at all—that's a good point. Um, but there are a number of lower court judges whose strategy on Chevron has been to say, "Well, I never find a statute ambiguous, so I don't have to worry about about Chevron." Well, you know. 
the court the court accepted certiorari on two questions and i'm reading uh I'm, jonathan adler over at the bollock conspiracy says they they did this they took one whether chevron deference permits hhs to set reimbursement rates based on acquisition costs blah 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 and whether petitioner suit challenging hhs adjustments is precluded by you know the statute and they said no it's not precluded um the, the suit's not precluded and and they and they answered this question in the negative they just didn't mention chevron but they took the question and and it came out negative so he thinks they did that they did address Chevron, in other words. Uh, in other words, since they took it on that, and then yeah. they said they addressed those two questions in this in this uh, opinion, uh, they they actually uh, substantially did, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, it's it's sort of a ghost ghosting. Is that can we use that? Yeah. To, uh, the the ghost of Chevron is uh, lurks in this in this decision, but. Uh, uh, or, the ghost of Chevron future or something. I don't know. I don't want to push this metaphor too far. Yeah. And he says the difference between how the DC circuit and the Supreme court handled Chevron is subtle, but important how the Chevron inquiry is framed and how one orders and conceives the steps can affect the outcome. And uh, so I, I, given the complexity of regulatory statutes, if a court adopts the view that any reasonable agency interpretation that is not quote directly foreclosed, will be upheld. That's what Srivnivasan said. The dice are loaded in the agency's favor. If on the other hand, the court first looks directly at the statute and utilizes all the traditional tools of statutory interpretation to determine whether the statute answers the question, agencies will prevail less often as they will never get the opportunity to present their position as quote, reasonable interpretation of statute. So that's the difference that, that, that uh, directly, you know, oh, does the statute directly foreclose it? Um, well, and, and that's why I went back and looked at the D.C. Circuit opinion, which I had not done uh, before this decision came out, uh, or, or at least uh, not in detail. And if you look at the D.C. Circuit posi- uh, decision by Judge Srinivasan, and you see that that was rejected, well, that's super meaningful. The fact that that mode of, of deciding in an agency's favor is now is no longer acceptable, that, or, or at least you know, under facts like these, that's super meaningful, but the court doesn't particularly say Particularly in the D.C. Circuit. The D.C. Circuit is one of the most pro-Chevron circuits there are, and I yeah. think people can wave this case around in front of them and say, hey, don't do this again. Yeah, well, it, it, I, let's hope that they do. I don't know if, this, if the D.C. Circuit will get the message uh, or not. I mean, maybe, I, I, think that, I think that folks have a lot of respect for Judge Srinivasan, so it could be that the court just didn't want to, uh, uh, you know, to, to bloody his nose too much uh, with I, the decision. I also think... I also think that as a practitioner, the, the D.C. Circuit isn't the Ninth Circuit. I, I don't think they'll look to specifically get around this. They'll adjust. I think they'll adjust, not a direct assault. Well, and the fact that Judge Pillard was on the right side of the issue in the first right. place is exactly. a good sign, is a good sign, too. Uh, but I do think, I mean, look, I agree with the substance of, of the decision. But as long as, as we have these misguided statutory interpretations coming from lower courts of appeals like the D.C. Circuit, that invoke Chevron deference uh, and, and reach the wrong result. As long as these cases are continuing to crop up, uh, or let me say that differently, as long as the Supreme Court continues to dodge Chevron, these cases are going to continue to crop up in the federal courts of appeals. The, the U.S. Supreme Court needs to put Chevron out of its misery. That's that's what needs to happen. And if they're not going to do it in this case, then why don't they grant cert in our opposition case, John, and they've got an opportunity to do it there. 
Exactly. Well, they, <laughs> they, they certainly have taken a long, long, long look at a potion. 18 reschedules and counting on that one. So <laughs> something, something, stay tuned. Something's got to happen with that one. But I think you said that uh, that our friend Adam White had something interesting to say. Oh, excuse me, it was Adler. I was wrong. It was Jonathan. Oh, Adler. okay, okay, all right. So he was gotcha. at the ball. I, I, I had, um, I was scanning the various commentary on this, and I confused them. Um, gotcha. Because I, I went by quickly. So I, I've already talked about uh, what Adler has to say, and and I think that that subtle um, difference. I, I called it the Chevron and ink blot, but. It does, uh, it, it allows too much wiggle room if you don't, you know, I guess there's what I'd call hard chevron, which is at, and then this is the way they did this one is, nope, clear statute, we move on. Yeah. Does, even does just, less even damage. Justice, even Justice Kavanaugh saw that this one was a unanimous decision. So uh, we'll be back with more right after this.